Hey Logo Geeks, Ian Padgett here and on this week's episode we're going to be chatting with Simon Manship about what it takes to get a job at a branding agency. Before we get into the interview I want to thank FreshBooks who have kindly sponsored this podcast. I tried a number of accounting softwares over the past few years and I feel that FreshBooks is the best especially since they redesigned it. Now go check it out yourself and to do that FreshBooks have kindly offered listeners of this show a free 30-day trial. To claim that just visit freshbooks.com forward slash logogeek and be sure to enter logogeek in the how did you hear about us section. This week I'm honoured to be chatting with Simon Manchip who in 2005 was one of the founders of the brand design agency Someone which has grown to become one of the best design agencies in the world working with brands that include Cancer Research, Eurostar and they even worked on the London 2012 Olympic Games too. Now, I was lucky enough to meet Simon at the awards ceremony for Transform Awards, where he and his team tend to walk away with several awards at the end of the night. Now, I brought Simon on as a guest to find out what it takes to work as a designer for one of the biggest and best agencies in the world. As a side note, I just want to apologise um, for the audio quality of this interview, which is quite echoey throughout, um, but I hope that you'll still enjoy um, the discussion and get a lot out of it too. So I introduce you to Simon Manship. I'd like to start this discussion by asking you to describe the best portfolio you've seen and what was it that made it so special? Sure. So I think the, the, it reminds me of a, a story that um, John Hegarty from BBH, who founded BBH, tells about how when they were starting an agency in New York, um, they were going around and they were doing their pitches and basically started the pitch with a really smart strategist, uh, might be an account director, but someone very slick who was very good at the sale. And they started telling the story about BBH and telling the, the strategy behind it and all the thinking and loads and loads of clever things. Um, and they couldn't, they couldn't kind of understand why they weren't winning the pitches. And uh, what they started to think, well, John started to think was, um, maybe we should start with the work. And um, so they flipped it. And instead of running out of time at the end of the meeting and showing a, a quick showreel, they just sat down silently and just showed the showreel uh, and started winning pitches immediately. And, it, and cutting out the fluff and the, the kind of the sell, if you like, um, was a, obviously a really smart move for them then. And I think it's a smart move now is that the best portfolios are the ones that kind of just cut straight to the work um, and have very little um, you know, sell at the beginning. And, and we were recently working with The Mill, who are a big post-production company um, here in London. They're also in New York and LA and various other parts of the world. And uh, we were doing a big project with them, and we wanted to kind of make sure we were hiring the right people. And so their pitch to us, the best portfolio I've seen in recent times, was a very similar thing. We, we walked into their studios, we sat down, they, they said hello, offered us a glass of water, and then um, proceeded just to press play. And that was all they needed to do. They pressed play, and the work was absolutely, and is continuing to be, absolutely astonishingly good. Uh, and we just were floored by the work. And then, of course, the conversation was opened and ready to um, begin. And so that, I think, is the best way of doing it, and that's the, the best portfolio I've seen in recent times, which is leading with the work, and it was just a showreel, and it probably lasted 60 seconds. Uh, and in those 60 seconds, they managed to cram in 
all the things that they were good at, all the things they've done, and all the things they want to do. Uh, and it was just an absolutely terrific showcase uh, for that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's probably the best portfolio I've seen in recent times. What was it they was presenting? Was it like video clips or did it include other areas of uh, design, such as like print design and logos? It was everything. And so that what's clever with the mill is that they, you know, they're famous for post-production and doing really smart um, computer graphics and enhancements of films. But what a lot of people don't realize is that they also have directors on board, they have animators on board, they have a really smart um, suite of people that can tackle all sorts of things, including VR uh, and uh, the augmented reality side of things that they're investing heavily in as well. So it was really interesting to see that, as well as kind of seeing Jay-Z's latest uh, you know, video f- from his album. You know, so so they, they really work with the best of the best, uh, as well as kind of creating things that are kind of then purchased rather than just waiting to be commissioned. So they've even invented their own tech for um, the uh, car industry, for the adverts surrounding the cars, where they've created their own car that can be wrapped in any shell so that it can resemble any car on the planet. It's pretty impressive technology. I've seen that technology. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, so I think that's what's really cool about them and the best portfolios that we're seeing is that people are responding to briefs uh, and that's really important to demonstrate that you can kind of respond to a commercial creative challenge, but they're also creating their own product services and uh, organizations that are kind of addressing projects and pro- products that they think are uh, valuable. So uh, that's what the mill are doing. They're kind of inventing as well as responding. And I think that's super useful. That sounds amazing. Um, so if a designer was coming into your studio for a job, would you recommend to present uh, their work in in that same way, like in video format, or would you still recommend to bring in some kind of printed portfolio, which is what I've always done myself? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting you, you said it because I think when when people kind of there, there seems to be stages, and I, and I think a lot of people don't recognise that actually, just like with pitching for new work, when you're trying to pitch yourself and get a new job, there are stages that you go through, and the kind of the first stage is absolutely to capture someone's attention. Uh, and then the second stage is to actually start to demonstrate what that person can do for you and what they, what they bring to the party that's different. Because we, we work in such an enormously competitive um, sector. It's, everyone thinks they are a designer. And most of our clients think they are designers. Uh, and, um, and everyone wants to be in the creative industries, or a lot of them, a lot of people do. And so the, the competition is immense. And so capturing people's attention is really your kind of first cool but then once you're actually in the agency meeting up with people that's an entirely different stage and a, a stage that i think demonstrates a need to demonstrate your people skills really um and so you know we we have some really simple rules you know uh, of kind of just don't be a dick <laughs> you know when you turn up uh, don't be uh, a dick you know just don't be stupid in the way that you behave um and don't be over cocky don't be really shy just be someone that you would like to meet at a party. But more than that, we, we call it the long-distance flight. And because our business um, is global, we spend a lot of time traveling. Um, and so actually the, one of the key things is would I want to spend 12 hours sitting next to this person on an airplane? Um, and, and if you kind of are talking to someone, you think, yeah, this is, they're really interesting. They've got loads to bring to the party. They're, they're worldly or they've got some strong opinions or all of those things that are interesting and compelling. That's really much more likely to want 
to kind of you want to spend more time with them. And so I think there's that kind of um, you know the long distance flight, as we call it, is really really useful. And I think the other thing to bear in mind is that. Design companies really are all the same. I mean, I know whenever we're in pitches, you're never really meant to say that, but we all offer very similar services. We have all been doing similar sort of things, and so the difference between hiring one design company and another is slim. And the, the kind of what we found recently is that a lot of our clients are just saying to us, you know, we hired you for you, for, for the people. And so um, the, the charisma and the character and the smart... Um, kind of chats that come behind those people are really the clinching elements and it's why hiring is so important to get right for any company but particularly in the creative industries because it's what really sets you apart from your competitors so it's you shouldn't be a wallflower in those interviews you should be memorable uh, and come in and, and kind of be a brand yourself really uh, rather than being someone who's kind of bland and, and sitting in the corner. Well, it sounds quite challenging to get a job in a branding agency like yours, but I hope uh, hearing this will be a reality check for those designers out there who want to take this direction. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not a doddle, but it but at the same time, it's kind of it's not. We haven't put loads of like when you read those things on online about job interviews at the kind of top companies, and they ask you these incredible mind bending questions, and everything's a trick. And basically, they they are really kind of manipulating every opportunity to try and either trip you up or make you shine. And um, we don't do any of that. I mean, there's, there's no kind of psychosomatic um, testing here. It's purely just people skills to kind of see. Okay, look, you know, is this person totally obsessed with typefaces? If so, terrific. You know, if the if the job requires an obsession with typography, you're hired, right? Um, but if if you're demonstrating a, a really great ability to talk about, I don't know, a, a wider social injustice that you're trying to uh, beat through creating a movement with a new uh, organisation, that's really interesting too, and shows a kind of wider social awareness. So, it's not really that we're setting up anyone to fool uh, it's just that you're basically you're really listening and I think that's the thing that you that people forget is that when you turn up and you're um, kind of showcasing your work it's very easy to fall into you know this is my typeface that I've designed for this brand and this is this color system that I've designed. And basically the creative director or the senior designer or whoever's interviewing you knows that they can see that firsthand what they're listening to is how do you come across who are you what makes you float you know what what makes you excited because ultimately we try and give people that work at someone the jobs that they've always wanted to do uh, we're, we're not kind of kind of just locking you in a corner and saying here you go there's a 500 page guidelines that you have to do it's like we want to get someone who's really into uh, a particular subject and give them the, the job of their dreams because then they're going to do an amazing job and um, so that's all we're trying to do is just listen rather than trip anyone up that's great advice and it's really useful to know so moving on to my next question um with cvs and portfolios what are the common mistakes that um people are making yeah so i mean they're they're, they're they go from kind of the the laughable to the kind of sublime really but the the, the classic thing is run a spell check. I mean, really, I know it sounds so basic, but you'd be astonished the amount of people that spell things wrong. And equally, make sure you're sending it to the right person uh, and the right agency. Like the other day, we got a, a really good portfolio sent over, um, but it was um, 
basically just cc'd to us and pretty much every other agency on the planet. <laughs> you just kind of look at it and go, it's so basic. Just be very careful when you press that send button because the emails that you're sending are, you know, your reputation. And, and I, I know that these things get circulated as well, like the amount of emails that followed this one portfolio that had been accidentally, and I'm sure it was an accident, but accidentally sent to all the agencies was hilarious because we were then, all the kind of creative directors that had been emailed on this were all just kind of saying, mate, you know, it's a great folio, but you just failed so badly on that first step. We can't, we can't kind of condone that. We can't allow that to happen and you've really got to sort it out. So better luck next time. So. Make sure you don't see the other agencies in it. Also, I think the other thing is that people really over-engineer things sometimes. So, you know, there, there is no need to kind of overdo it. If the work is terrific, the work will sing through, and you, you really see that work very clearly at the early stages. So style over content is not cool. Um, you know, when you're doing your CV or when you're doing your cover letter, it really doesn't need all the bells and whistles uh, on that actual pit. Save it for the work. Another thing is the, the very long uh, email, which tells me your life story and how you started out working behind the tills at Marks and Spencers and you've worked your way up and now you're ready to enter into a world of graphic design. It's like, yeah, I, you know, we don't need to know that stuff. I'll find that out at interview. The, the job of that kind of first portfolio, that first email, is to establish that you are credible, that you are interesting, and that you're out there doing something spectacular that would enhance and add to uh, the studio that you're applying to, uh, regardless of who it is. And, and, my, and also, what, my last little thing, I have got a list of them, <laughs> but my last thing I'd add to that is um, the, um, the kind of reliance on pre-made websites for portfolios. Um, and you know there are a lot of them out there. Some are a lot better than others. Uh, and making the effort to create your own site um, that is a bit more unique than putting it on Behance or any of these other uh, pre-made sites really helps you um, because actually when you're looking at these portfolios, generally in my case, uh, I'm on the move a lot so I'm looking at it on an iPad or, a, or an iPhone and uh, it really is annoying to constantly have to try and look up websites that don't really work very well and don't showcase the work and you need five clicks to get through to one project, etc. You're not going to get it. I'm afraid the PDF in this instance is probably still one of the best ways to showcase your work if it is um, print and stills based. That's useful to know. Like I've uh, had to look at a lot of CVs and portfolios myself and um, you know when you've had when when you have like um hundreds of applications to look through anything uh we designers can do to make that process easier will always get you more brownie points at the end of it um so uh you know sites that are slow or you know have too many clicks um they're more likely to simply be dismissed so do what you can Everyone's trying to reinvent the wheel on that stuff all the time, but the, I'm afraid in that one instance that it's hard to beat a, a very small in memory size, you know, megabyte or two uh, PDF. Because when someone's, I, I had someone send me like a, a 250 megabyte PDF the other day, and kind of go, dude, I, I have to wait until I get back to the studio to look at that. And when, when you do, you fire it up and it's just badly compressed images. You just go, oh, it's a total waste of time. So it kind of shows a technical ineptitude as well, which kind of puts you off. I just want to take a short break to talk about FreshBooks, who have kindly sponsored this podcast and made it possible. 
When I started Loga Geek, it was a side venture. I was taking on projects now and again just for fun, and I was doing my invoices in InDesign and was managing my profits and expenses in Excel. But when I took the leap and I started to take on more projects, this really wasn't working for me. Everything took so much time, and that was time I really needed to spend working on my client projects. And I found FreshBooks to be the perfect solution, as I could quickly and easily create professional-looking invoices, and I also had clear visibility on my profits and expenses too. FreshBooks have kindly offered uh, you, the listener of this podcast, a free 30-day trial. Uh, to check it out, just visit freshbooks.com forward slash logogeek and be sure to enter logogeek in the how did you hear about us section. Now let's get back to the interview. Now I've seen in various books and magazines um, unique ways of getting noticed and um, I seen one time that there was a uh, designer who'd gone as far as recreating the art director's favorite magazine, um, but they uh, filled it with their own work. Now, I'm aware that things like this take a substantial amount of time and energy to do. Um, so I'm really curious to know from you, um, as the owner of an agency, um, are things like this um worth it i mean do they actually make a difference yeah it's a good it's a it's a really good question and i think that because we are creative people when you're looking at ways of getting into agencies that you respect and admire you want to take a creative approach and that's entirely understandable and and commendable right Um, and i have seen it work wonders but i've also seen it backfire an awful lot and i think that what we have to recognize is that these are stunts generally um, and stunts, I think, are a bit like a, a fart, actually, is that they do make a big impression, uh, but then they're kind of gone. Uh, and unless the author can kind of turn that initial reaction into something very memorable and likable uh, and useful, uh, then it's really not worth doing. I mean, we've had people send things, their CVs cast in latex, these huge slab of latex turned up, we're like, what the hell's that? Uh, which, did, which did get a reaction, and I thought, well, we'd better you know, look at this person and see what they've done. I've had people, um, one person actually completely cloned and remade our website, but replaced our work with their work, which was a hell of a lot of work. Um, but, the, the, you know, that didn't work in that instance. Um, and I've seen someone actually sent in a, a knitted turd to us, which was quite amazing. Um, <laughs> a little brown poo that was made out of wool. Uh, and that definitely uh, did get a reaction. They turned out to be an illustrator, and that was quite cool. And we kind of uh, have kind of got them on our books now. But so, so it feels like there, there are ways of getting in there. I think the, the best stunt that I've ever seen that really got a brilliant um, reaction was in my advertising days. And um, someone was trying to get uh, an interview with one of the creative directors. And they really did their research, and they found out the creative director's favorite film. They found out where they lived. They found out loads and loads of information about them. And um, one morning, um, the, um, the receptionists came over to kind of the creative department and said, oh, um, I found your wallet and handed over um, the creative director's wallet. And um, the, obviously the CD was freaking out, going, oh my God, I didn't realize I'd lost my wallet. And he tapped his back pocket and went, hang on, I've got my wallet. That's not my wallet. 
But he looked, at, looked in this wallet, and um, what someone had done is they'd replicated all these things that they knew about them and put them in the wallet. So there was like a, a ticket to go see Blade Runner, which was his favourite film, and there was a kind of picture of where he lived, and there was a bit, very like you know serious detail, but all sorts of creative stuff in there as well. And um, what was really clever about it was there was just only one business card in the whole wallet, and the business card was from this strange couple of people that he'd never heard of. So he dropped them a, a note, and uh, sure enough, what they'd done is they'd come in, pretended to be a courier, they dropped the wallet on the floor of reception, and then walked out, knowing full well that someone would pick it up and go, oh, look, it's their guy, that guy's wallet. So it's, it's, that was a brilliant way in, and they, they absolutely got an interview and got hired. So that, was a, that is a stunt done in the purest possible sense of it being a stunt. It wasn't really put, kind of masquerading as a portfolio, uh, but it got them the audience with the, the creative director to get that project. And I've always thought that was a cracker. Um, so, yeah, that sort of thing does work really, really nicely. That's incredible. It's uh, slightly creepy too, to be honest. Um, but yeah, it's amazing. I, I guess at the end of the day, it's all about getting noticed. Um, but after that point, you still really need to have a good portfolio. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, because you have to, if, if you understand that it's a stunt, it's not really your portfolio, it's a stunt. If you want to take that approach, then that stunt better be good, you know. And, and it also kind of, there's this thing that we love to say to, to clients is that, you know, the worst thing that branding and marketing and advertising can do is assume that the person's interested, that actually what you need to remember is that you're interrupting their day. And I think that in, in the instances of a stunt, the person probably is interested, particularly if you've done your research and you know that they're hiring, uh, but you are definitely interrupting the day because they've got probably a few other things they need to do that day. So if there's a way of kind of capitalizing on that, then you're on a good thing and you can probably win. It sounds like it's worth the time then. Um, so moving on to my next question, uh, designers are in the very fortunate position today where we can choose to either work for ourselves or we can choose to work for a company or agency like yourself. In my situation, I work for an agency three days a week and um, I also run um, Logo Geek um, the, the rest of uh, the time. Um, both directions have their pros and cons. So I'm curious, in your opinion, what are the advantages for working um, for an agency over working for yourself? Yeah, I mean, so I, I too have done both. Uh, I've been freelance and I've been agency side and now obviously, you know, run an agency. And so I think that there are all sorts of benefits to both sides. Um, I, the reason I chose agency side and the reason that I personally think that agency is preferable is just because the life of a freelancer, as I experienced it, was lonely. Um, and uh, I think that these days the projects that are worth working on are generally too big, too important and too complicated to be done by one person. And so as a freelancer, you have generally brought in as a fairly small cog in a bigger machine and so you never really get to own that project or really feel part of that team actually. Um, even though there are long-term freelance contracts, those long-term contracts generally don't go much further than kind of three or four months and so um, it's, a, it's a very lonely process that you're kind of you are a gun for hire. You know, you're a hitman that comes in and is hired specifically for one project. And very often the freelancer isn't given the best job in the studio, uh, is probably given the more kind of tedious things to tidy up and sort out because freelancers are generally a panic purchase on behalf of an agency who has either, you know, not managed to scale up in, in time or has, has, has got some kind of emergency that they need to handle. So 
I found freelancing quite a lonely existence, although it's a, quite a thrill to kind of w walk in the door of a new agency every other week and be given this project and go, right, you know, here's the brief, sort it out, and you're up against the establishment that are there at the agency and you've really got to show your show what you can do. So that is quite a, a thrill, but after a while that felt like a kind of a bit of a kind of a series of one night stands and actually we're looking for something more satisfying and long term. And so I think the agency approach also brings one other thing, which is that if you are a freelancer, um, you're kind of constantly looking for the next project, or certainly I was, um, because you know that you've got you know three weeks or four weeks or three months or whatever it is in one place, and it's quite hard to concentrate on that one project because you're kind of looking over your shoulder all the time at what should be coming up next, kind of keeping the cash flow going. So on the practical sense, I found that quite difficult. On the kind of intellectual sense, I found it quite um unsatisfactory and unfulfilling. Uh, and on the agency side, you then have a complete opposite approach. You don't have to worry about the next job because someone else is going to provide that. Um, you've got an amazing uh, opportunity to create teamwork and, and work tightly as a team and create friends in that team. I mean, at someone, it, we are really a dysfunctional family, and I know that's a very overused term, but, you know, that we are friends not colleagues here and people see that clients see that and often that's why we win because we kind of see uh, or kind of people see that we are not just kind of doing a job here that we're actually really enjoying ourselves and uh, that we've kind of got great close connections and that helps make the work better because a lot of what we do is unsaid uh, it's kind of implicit in the project so I think that the, the, the agency thing is really exciting, plus you get to work on loads of projects uh, that kind of continually stretching you, so it keeps the kind of creative muscles fit and ready. So for me, I just found that the kind of agency approach much more satisfying uh, and you know, it stretches you in, in a further way. And I think also you can get a chance to ask some more difficult questions. You're not just a gun for hire that's turned up to do one job you have the ability to say, hey, do you know what? I know you've asked me to do this, but I've heard about this other project going on in the company. Could I have a go at that as well? So it gives you a chance to kind of grow professionally uh, within the organization. I totally agree with that. Now, I know there was a point where you was working as a freelancer and you've been able to build a very successful global um, design agency. Now, I know that there will be designers out there who currently work for themselves who might want to do the same. So do you have any practical steps that um, people can take to do the same thing? Like, How have you been able to go from being a one-man band to building an agency? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that I think if you look at um, the government stats, there are tens and tens of thousands of design companies registered in the UK. And the vast majority of those people although those companies rather are under three people, I think it is, you know, they're, they're, you, you are the majority, <laughs> we are the minority, so, uh, you know, don't knock it, it's a, it's a great way of doing things, because you, you know, you have control, but growing uh, into a business is a very different animal, and I think that the, someone said to me that you only know that you're running a company when uh, the company runs when you're not there, um, and so that's a really interesting acid test, is that do you have to be in the room every day for the company to exist. And obviously if you're you know, one man band or there's only two or three of you, you pretty, the answer is pretty much yes, you have to be in the room. Uh, so practically speaking, what we set out to do was we always wanted to run a company um, because we, you know, we, we kind of set up in reaction to what we thought was a brilliant sector, uh, but it was poorly 
represented and poorly run by people. So, so what we did in a very simple way was, um, when we first started, there was four of us, right? So there's uh, Gary Holt, David Law, Laura Hussey and me. And we were all in a room, we were actually in a basement, uh, borrowed off um, a friendly company that we'd done some work for, which I will be forever indebted to. And um, when we got this, we were working on four projects and there were four people. So we all needed to be in the room at all time. And then we won another project. And so uh, we all had this kind of little rule saying, do you know what, I really don't want to use the same typeface on this new project, even though at the time I think we all had a particular favourite. Um, and so we bought a new typeface. And as a small company, buying a typeface, even though I think it was only 200 quid or something, was quite a big deal. You know, cash flow is king when you're a small business. Um, but we said, no, let's buy a new typeface for it. And, um, and also, because this new project came in and we were all stacked out, on uh, the other projects, I said, well, we're going to need some help as well because we're not really going to be able to do this project justice. And so rather than, you know, doing that, what most people would do is taking all the fee uh, between the four of us and, you know, stretching ourselves a bit thin, what we did is we took a, a bit of the fee, cut it to one side and used that to find someone that could help us for the following, you know, three to six months on this project. And so they came in and they started working on it and we made friends with them. And then actually, uh, we won another project like a month later. And so we said, you know what, we, we, we can't really do this again, so we're going to have to buy another person. Just, and we're also going to have to buy another typeface. And so what happened was every project we got, we bought a new typeface for, and we also bought a new person for. Always with the intention that that person was free to go at any time and was free to kind of leave. And I, I know that Pixar has a very similar syst system that actually their contracts aren't really contracts that you, you work at Pixar because you want a Pixar job, um, and if you want to leave, you can leave, right? And similarly with us, that was the same process. We didn't have any kind of difficulty in kind of doing contracts and things. We just had these great projects. And slowly, we looked kind of, at the end of the year, we looked around and we had like six more people. And it kind of just naturally evolved. And every week, we kind of looked at the money side of things thinking, yeah, it's okay. We can kind of continue to pay these people. And then each of those people ended up doing two or three projects each until it slowly grows. And that's then, you know, we turned around, you know, uh, 10 years later and you've got 40 people in the room. And, and that's honestly how we grew it, is that as a project arrived, we've kind of bought a new person. And uh, that was, that's kind of it. And then you end up with a company and, uh, you, you know, you don't always have to be in the room if you have um, a little bit of scale on your side. And so then it becomes a company rather than kind of uh, a single endeavor. So, yeah, that's how you do it. Kind of buy people as you would typefaces, which <laughs> sounds like a terrible thing to say, but that's actually how it started. Uh, and just having the courage to take a bit of that fee that you would normally take as a freelancer straight and put it in your bank account um, is to spend some of that fee on growing your influence, growing your network, and growing the people you work with. And I promise you that the work benefits uh, because what we found was the work started doing kind of less of what we expected and more of what we hoped it would do. So we, the brief would be always quite specific and we'd all have a clear idea of what we wanted to get. But at the end of it, because you're collaborating, you always get something slightly different um, and not exactly what you expected. And that kind of made it better, richer, and more interesting to work with. And so suddenly you find yourself that you've got a, a small company and you're working with them. It's great. Can I just quickly drill down on something you said here? Like you mentioned that you started with four people. Was that you and like three friends? Well, the way it started was that um, David Law 
uh, and Laura Hussey and I, we all ran a company uh, which was called No One at the time. And um, that ran, and that was an in-house agency um, as part of an ad agency um, called HHCL. And um, we kind of started the agency there, started the design agency as part of the ad agency. And that was really successful and it did really well, um, but it wasn't ours. And so we wanted to kind of become independent. And so we, we became independent and we closed no one. And the next day we opened someone. Um, and someone um, was Laura, David and I. And then um, very early on in that conversation, we um, joined up with Gary, Gary Holt, who had just left um, Lambinen. And um, so there was kind of the four of us, and we were kind of clinging together, um, thinking, well, actually, let's see if we can make a go of it. And, and so we had four projects, and that kind of kept each of us busy. Uh, and we tried actually working remotely, and we you know, were walking around London stealing Wi-Fi by standing outside of hotels and everything, all the tricks in the book. And in the end, ended up in this basement in uh, Euston, Borrowed off a off a friendly company that we'd done some work for, and um, yeah, and that's how and that's how um, someone started the four of us in a basement in Houston. That's amazing. So, um, with the four people, how did you go about managing roles? Was there like one person that uh, managed sales and another accounts? How how did that work? Yeah, no. So um, to this day, the the kind of roles um, are very very flat, very very equal throughout the whole business. Um, so we, you know, just as a lot of companies like to say, well, you know, creative ideas come from anywhere, so that means we're we're open to creativity throughout the whole organisation, which we are too. Um, we also kind of spread the roles, so you know, we all under, we all taught ourselves um, accounting and figured out okay what what a uh, profit and loss sheet can look like, um, which I know a lot of designers go, oh, I, you know, I can't add up. And you go, yes, you can. Um, you, 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 you've all been to a, uh, a restaurant and, and halved the bill. It's no more than that, really. You just a slightly few more boxes to fill in. Um, so we all sort ourselves out on the accountancy side. We all sort ourselves out on how to present the work. We all sort ourselves out on all the levels that you need, you know, setting up career accounts and taxis and all the, the things that you really need to run a company, um, as well as, you know, designing the, the studios themselves and, and sorting out you know, who empties the bins every week. So we're absolutely, you know, grassroots up on all, all fronts. And when we started the business, that's how we did it. We all mucked in. So if someone had a meeting, so say Gary had a meeting, you know, Laura, David and I would be running around, you know, making sure there's water and coffee and croissants for breakfast, you know, in that meeting room, making sure it's all neat and tidy. So you, it really is, I think, it has to be a kind of can-do attitude. Um, and, um, yeah, we, we kind of have kept that going to this day you clearly done an, an amazing job as someone is probably one of the best agencies in london um so well done with everything that you've achieved it's incredible now i have one last question for you um assuming that you work with freelancers how do you go about finding new talent like are is there any particular um platform or website such as like Behance or Dribble, um, where you're looking and searching for people. Yeah, it's a good question, and I think the the thing with freelancers is that um, again, we we don't actually use a lot of freelancers here, um, and um, actually we we kind of often much prefer to kind of work with someone full time and kind of you know grow with them basically, and they grow with us. Um, but we we do work with freelancers, and I think that the 
the way that we do it is, is largely through word of mouth. Um, because I think that there's that old mantra of saying that if you do great work, you get more great work. And if you do crap, you get more crap. And I think that actually word of mouth is the best way of finding great um, people. Um, and because the truth is that those people, the best people, are generally very busy. Um, and they don't wait around. Um, so what we found is that actually the best people, while they're, they're busy and they don't wait around, they do archive their stuff because they're probably organized. That's why they're good. Um, and so they probably have their own site. Uh, and so we have a variety of kind of websites uh, that are pretty much authored by one person uh, that are just their portfolio sites that we go and have a look at and see what they're up to and um, kind of kind of hire them based on that. Um, so really, they, they have their own site. I mean, I know that there are all the, the network sites out there from Behance to Dots to LinkedIn. And, and obviously, we're, we're aware of those and stay um, up to date in what's going on those as well. Um, you know, Creative Pool are really good as well and all of those guys. And so we kind of, I think we casually look at that, but we're probably more actively looking at recommendations uh, that fly around, as you know, very quickly every day, kind of saying, oh, have you seen this piece of work? Um, so I think that those networks are really important, as well as, I'm afraid, uh, the horrors of social media. Um, so the, the, the joys of um, Twitter and uh, LinkedIn and Facebook and all those things, work is shared a lot around on there as well. Um, so it's any channel, I think, is the answer uh, that is useful. And so as a freelancer, um, you know, What's interesting is we run an agency, but we're, we're kind of in the same boat as freelancers because we're, we're permanently on the lookout for new business. So the way we kind of do it is we're always looking at, at the, all of the channels, just seeing what's going on and taking the temperature of, of the kind of various industries and companies. So similarly with freelancers, they can be doing a similar thing, kind of displaying what they're up to. You know, like I got a brilliant um, email the other day from a photographer's agent and, you know, all the photographers are pretty much freelancers and Gavin Bond had just taken some great shots of Liam Gallagher for GQ and so you just go to his site, see what he's been up to and it's just like cracking portfolio, let's get in touch. So um, that's kind of the, the best way to go about it is kind of have your own site and then link that site to every possible network you possibly can and keep it linked up, which of course is a full-time job in itself. <laughs> it's a nightmare, uh, but that is, I'm afraid, the horrors of what we are faced with these days. Absolutely, I can't argue with that. Now we come to the end of our time, so um, yes, Simon, thank you so much for your time and for being such a fantastic guest. Um, you've definitely given us a lot to think about, so thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for asking us. Well, that was a really great interview. Um, getting into an agency is certainly a challenge, but I hope the information Simon uh, kindly shared with us today will motivate you to work hard to get that job that you've always wanted. Simon, thank you again for your time. Um, if you want to learn more about Simon and his agency, visit his website, someoneinlondon.com. Show notes for this episode can be found at logogeek.uk forward slash podcast seven. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you like to support what I'm doing, um, I'd really appreciate a honest rating or review on iTunes. If you want to chat about this episode and meet other designers too, um, join the Logo Geek community on Facebook. You can find that simply by visiting logogeek.uk forward slash community. 
Or you can find me on Twitter at Logo underscore Geek if you just want to ask me a question. As always, thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.